Barry. Well, good morning again, church family. Hope you're having a great weekend, and it's so good to see everybody this morning, and uh, we're blessed by your presence here. If you would, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19 this morning as we jump into the story, which is chapter 15. Hope you've been enjoying this, keeping reading. Won't ask for a show of hands, but if you've been keeping up with your reading, we're so thankful for you. If you're not, we're thankful for you as well. And just a little tip, if you are behind, just jump in with chapter 16 this week. Don't feel like you got to get caught up. I think there's more uh, benefit in, in getting with uh, where we're at and then maybe slowly trying to catch up than just trying to cram it all in into once. And so just jump into chapter 16 this week. It was 700 years ago that by the end of the 14th century that half of Europe, if you know your history, you know where I'm going, half of Europe had died to this unseen mystery illness that became known by us as the bubonic plague, but at the time was known as the Black Death, responsible for wiping out half of a continent. It was unseen. It was incurable, and to the ones that lived through it, it was completely random for the most part in who it infected. This disease wrecked the known world. It spreaded more, and it was spreading more than disease. It ended up spreading fear and isolation and even superstition. Now, we know that the plague was actually caused by what? You know, rats, right? But not just rats, it was fleas on the back of rats that were carrying the bubonic plague. And the rats were infected, so if you're around the rats, you're around the fleas, and therefore you go. But what was interesting is there was, in Europe, there was two groups of people that seemed to be immune to this. Orthodox Jews and single widowed women. Now, not all of them were immune, but it seemed like out of a grouping, if you looked at the world, it was interesting that for some reason, these two groups of people, Orthodox Jews and single widowed women, never got the plague, never got the black death. Well, nobody knew why, but it doesn't take humans very long to start stereotyping and start coming up with reasons. And so before long, these two groups of people started to be singled out and started to be persecuted by the mobs of people. They started to be called devil worshipers. They started to be called witches. And then before long, that started to turn into public mockery and then eventually even burning at the stake of women that they called witches. Now, the other thing that was not known at the time that is so interesting to me is that the reason the two groups were not infected but were largely immune was two reasons. There's twofold. One is that Orthodox Jews kept to a very strict kosher diet. More strict diet, less rats in your home, (laughs) right? Take care of your food, less rats. And single, this one's so interesting, single widowed women were very fond of a certain kind of pet, and that pet was cats. And cats, just like apples keep doctors away, cats keep rats away. Now, it's unfortunate. Well, I think what we learn from this little story, it's unfortunate how our misconceptions of others lead to stereotypes and, of course, worse. Cats and single women still have a connection. We just call them certain things on Halloween. 
black cats and women. Well, those are a witch, right? That comes from the bubonic plague. Misperceptions persist, and then they become damaging. And today I want to show us that not just misperceptions about people are damaging, but in the story of Elijah, we're going to get to see how misperceptions about who God is and his proximity to our pain can be damaging as well. Today in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, we get to talk about a guy who should have been on the highest of highs spiritually. In chapter 18, it has come to a literal apex of the spiritual high of all spiritual highs. There's been this showdown in Israel, this incredible text that Nathan did such a good job of showing our kids. We even had fire up here, man. I still remember fire in the classroom from Carice Myers when I was a kid, so those kids will never forget Nathan Kitchens, right? I still remember when she burned something in front of us, and it was like, whoa, we had fire in a Bible class, right? I love that we had the kids back up and teens were like, eh, whatever, you're fine, right? You guys are fine, but we know how that works. But this should have been the highest of highs. Here on the mountain, everything comes together. Here Elijah calls for this showdown. All of Israel has turned their hearts, it seems, towards the Baal and towards the Asherahs, and now he says, let's find out. Let's see what happens. And he does the showdown. He has told Ahab, the king, and he's like, let's go. 450 your prophets versus me. We'll all pray, we'll set it up the same, and we'll see what happens. And here in the text, in this showdown, on the mount, not only did the prophets of Baal end up looking like fools in chapter 18, but they get exposed for the frauds that they are. Because Baal didn't show, did he? Despite the taunting, despite the praying, despite the cutting, despite the shouting and the yelling by the hundreds of prophets, not one of those prayers or chants or shouts did a thing. They were exposed in a spectacle of ignorance. And there on the mountain there was a revelation to the truth, the truth about idolatry. Now in contrast, to Baal's silence, Elijah prays one simple prayer. And we talked about this in class this morning. You notice he doesn't even ask for fire. He just prays, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And then there comes a fire. Now don't miss how, how visible this would have been. This is on top of a mountain. And this fire that comes down not only consumes the bull as the sacrifice, it consumes the wood and the 12 different pourings out. Did you guys notice the number? There's four jars of water. They go fill them up three times, three times four, right? It's 12. What Elijah is doing is he's restoring covenant. He's saying, let's go back to our roots. And this fire comes down and, and consumes all that, including the stones. I looked this up. It's somewhere between 2,300 to 6,000 degrees that you would have to get in order to uh, melt stone. What I tried to relate that to, to modern day, is what we got to think about is what would look like a rocket launch. This is a thermite reaction. Fire coming from heaven that you could see it miles away. This is an old photo from the space shuttle taking off from six miles away. This photo was taken six miles away. So in your imagination, you can see this highest of high. 
This incredible moment when all of Israel, for miles around, even if they didn't get a ticket to the showdown on Mount Carmel, they would have seen this smoke and this fire, and then they might have even heard the chants that what incredible thing happened is that all people fell on their faces and they proclaimed, Yahweh, he is Lord. Yahweh, he is God. Now to get our heads around this highest of high, maybe... For me, I would think, what would a moment be like that? What could I relate that to? Maybe a service where I got up early in the morning in the mountains and I got to see a a sunrise in the mountains and then we got together and we worshipped and there was not only baptisms but a prodigal son walked through the door and everything just came together and everybody was in awe. We've had nights like that. We've had Wednesdays. We've had Sundays. We've had retreats like that where you're just like, God is here. Amen? We've all had those moments. Camps, late night baptisms, moments where you're just blown away at the workings of God. This is what Elijah just witnessed. It's what he just experienced. So you would think Elijah would be carrying this highest of high for weeks and weeks. But this highest of high spiritually in the next 24 hours turns to the lowest of lows. That's where we pick it up in chapter 19. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. She threatens his life. He's just killed 450 plus. He's had just this moment. So Elijah's response to this threat is this. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. From spiritual high to literal suicide. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Probably reading into this, my own experiences more than I need to, but perhaps his discouragement, perhaps his disappointment is tied and connected to unmet expectations. Perhaps Elijah thought that at this moment, that all uh, after what happened on the mountain with this display of fire, that all people would repent, that people would turn their heart back, that if what Randy Harris used to say, if, if somebody would just hear the name of God for what it really was, they would fall on their knees and change their life, but we don't hear. I think that's what Elijah was wanting. Maybe even hope that the repentance would work itself up into the halls of power in Samaria and even Ahab and Jezebel would say, you know what, we're wrong. We have turned the nation away from where they're supposed to be. Maybe that was his expectations, but none of that happens. And so here's Elijah going, what's it worth? I don't know what sets of discouragement ablaze In your heart, maybe it's mistakes. 
Maybe it's those unmet expectations. Maybe it's the tyranny of small disappointments that just add up, that kind of death by a thousand paper cuts. Maybe it's just day after day or week after week of you don't really notice it, but eventually you just look around and you're under a broom bush going, God, I just wish all this would stop. Now, whatever it is, it's one thing to be discouraged, but it's another thing to believe that you're a disappointment. And Elijah is believing, I believe in this life and in this moment, that he's a disappointment. This is where he finds himself. What does he say? He says, I am no better than my ancestors. And what he's pointing to is, what's it worth? I'm just like those who've come before me that nobody would listen to. I'm just like those Israelites who wandered in the desert. Now, I don't know what his source, or your source more accurately, sorry, your source of discouragement may be. But I think in the text what we find out is that Elijah's source probably, and I'm willing to even bet, matches what our sources of discouragement often are. In the text we find out that his discouragement is connected what? Verse 3, fear. He's just had this moment, but yet fear is still able to take hold of him. You guys can relate, right? We know we have nothing to fear, but when a fearful moment comes up, fear has a way of capturing us very quickly. Elijah here is afraid of Jezebel. Another source of his disappointment and discouragement has got to be exhaustion. Man, I've been on some spiritual highs with teens when I was a youth minister, but I was exhausted, very open to the enemy's lies, just out of weary, weary days and nights, exhausted. And he's just had this moment, but yet then he's also had to run for a day, and now he finds himself in the middle of nowhere. He's exhausted. Maybe it's comparison. What's he say again? I'm no better than my ancestors. Verse 4. Comparison is such a tool of discouragement. Have you noticed you never really... Now, you may judge down, but we compare up. You notice that? It's always somebody has something better or somebody works out better or they've got a charmed life or they don't have any problems. We always compare upward. Right? And he's doing that. Or maybe it's isolation. He's out there all alone. All this adds up and Elijah is ready to die. He's done. He finds himself sitting under this broom bush hoping God will just take his life. Sounds a lot like one of his other prophet friends, Jonah. Now this morning in a crowd this size, there's without a doubt that there's people that this morning you either dragged yourself to the couch online to maybe stick with us for a little bit or you dragged yourself out of bed, got dressed and showed up despite a whole litany of discouragements. First of all, I thank you for that. I think there's something about showing up that our culture is missing. But the truth is, there's people in here today that are disappointed. It may be just this year, 2023. It might have started off with a bang, but it hasn't ended with a bang. Maybe it's just a long list of things that you've got going on. I don't know, but I promise you, many of us in here can relate to sitting under a broom bush. And maybe not with suicidal thoughts, 
I want to be honest about Elijah's thoughts. But maybe just with thoughts of, what's it all worth? I've been there. I'll be there again. But I want to pick out something that happens here in this text at the first part of chapter 19 that I think is so interesting. Because there's no word that in the text is ever wasted. No word in Scripture is wasted. And no word in Scripture finds its meaning outside of Scripture. The best interpreter for Scripture is Scripture, right? The answer is in the text, we say, although we sometimes like to find it outside of the text. But that's a lesson for another day. But here there's something repeated that I think is so interesting, and it's Elijah's location of disappointment. And what's mentioned twice is that he finds himself disappointed sitting under a broom tree. It's mentioned twice in verse 4 and 5. So why does the text, if no word is wasted, mention a broom bush? Well, I'm glad you asked. Or I asked myself on behalf of you. Right? Now, what a broom bush is this? It's called a rotom in Hebrew. With the broom tree or the broom bush, bush is heavy with meaning. There's one that I want to show you here on the screen, if you can see it. I don't know if it's kind of getting washed out. It's on the right side for y'all up there. And it's kind of on the hillside, little, little green, kind of blackish gray thing over there on the side. It's not much to look at. A rotum bush, it grows in deserts all over the world. Here in the U.S., they're out in Arizona. But the rotum is small. We would probably say, well, that's just a tumbleweed before it starts tumbling. It's about what it looks like. It's a little larger than those, actually. But it usually grows alone in the desert. Biblically, the broom bush has this layered meaning. It shows up multiple times through the text. It's always in deserts. But on its first layer of meaning, it shows up in places of despair. In Job 30, Job speaks of being punished like that of a broom bush. He's connecting the broom bush to the idea of his lack of safety, his lack of food, his loneliness that he's experiencing. In Psalm 120, the psalmist speaks of the coals of the broom bush, that they even had to burn a broom bush just to find warmth, and how that's a punishment in his lament. In Genesis 21, probably the most uh, glaring example of a broom bush being a place of despair outside of this place in 1 Kings is this bush is where Hagar, the servant in Abram's, in Abraham and Sarah's home, goes to take her child Ishmael and places him under a broom bush, and then she goes away a stone's throw to say he's going to die. So here, in this first layer, the rotum, the broom bush, is a place of desperation. But what's interesting Let's go back to how we often even stereotype God a little bit. And we may look at this bush and say, good night, who would want that as a place? If that's all you got, why are you in the desert? Get out of the desert, Elijah. Of course you feel alone. Get out of the desert. But that's just layer one. This rotom bush actually has a dual meaning. It's both a location of despair in the text, but it's also an incredible place of comfort. It serves not as just an image of, yes, I don't have much, but it also serves as 
is an image of in a dry and weary land, I've got what I need. You got to put yourself, it's hard for us as Americans to do this because we have so much, right? I had to choose today, this morning, so many things. What would I have for breakfast and what would I wear today? I have choice. I am, I am crippled by the God of options, little G, right? And you are too. But imagine being a shepherd and you're trying to get sheep through a land like this that's on the screen. It's hot, it's dry, you're worn out. And there in that moment, you find one solitary broom bush. And that's where we get the image. Because that one solitary broom bush, barely big enough for one person, but it is big enough for you to get under and get out of the heat. It's big enough for you to get your head under and get some relief from the heat. And that's the second layer. The rodent bush is not only an image of despair, It's this beautiful layer below that that says, if it's despair, it's also enough. The rodent bush, this broom bush where Elijah finds himself, he's in a place of despair, but it shows up in the text because God is going to say, even in your despair, I'm here. Even in your desperation, even in your discouragement, I'm here. Check out these texts. Isaiah 4, 6. We might think of shelter as an oak tree or a giant mansion. But biblically, this idea here in Isaiah is a broom bush. Where God says through prophet Isaiah, I will be a shelter and shade in the heat of the day. A refuge and a hiding place from the storm and rain. Just enough. Or in Isaiah 25.4, where the prophet now speaks a praise to God and said, you have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. That's desert imagery. You've been a broom bush. See, what Elijah got is not what he wanted. He wa- I, I really believe he wanted the nation turning back. That's his job, right? Anybody that speaks on behalf of God wants to see fruit. Good night how I want that. Right? I want it in my own life. I want people to get excited about Jesus. There's nothing better than when somebody comes and goes, man, I am getting excited about what God's doing in my life. There's nothing like that. But you don't always get it. We don't always get the prodigal to come home. We don't always get our family to come to Jesus. We don't always get our neighbor to be interested in those invites. Right? So like Elijah, we don't get what we want. But what the promise here is we get what we need. Elijah didn't get Ahab and Jezebel repenting on their knees. But what he got was enough. The rodent bush is God's symbol. If you have enough, just enough, it's all you need. I love this in Psalm 121.5 that Brad read earlier. It's a beautiful passage. The Lord, which is so interesting that in Psalm 120, there's a negative aspect, that first layer of despair for the rodent bush. And then Psalm 121 follows it to say, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The biblical mind is trying to tell us, the more we're into the text, 
what the text is trying to tell us that this small little nothing of a bush represents and displays the goodness of God. It might not be the oak tree by a lake in the mountains. It's 60 degrees. It might be 105 out and you're barely able to make it, but you find a bush and you get a little bit of shade and it's enough until you can get up and go to the next one. See, I want you guys to do this. This is what the text is trying to teach us. The text says the Lord is your shade at your right hand. Now what that means is this. So take your right hand and reach it out. Just reach it out in front of you. The idea in the text is this. That is how far God is. Now some of you aren't doing it. I don't know why. I ain't doing that. Tell me. We're going to move from this to this. We're not Pentecostal, right? <laughs> no, you're missing the point, grumpies. All right. What the text is teaching us is God is not over there. God is not way over there. God is not back there on Mount Carmel where there was fire. Where God is is right here at your right hand. He's shade at your right hand. You can put your arms down. Some of you are keeping out. You guys are like getting extra credit. That's right. But even in the desert, even in disappointment, even in pain, even in our hurt, even when there's nothing but a spindly tumbleweed to give us a little relief in a dry and weary land, that's enough. God is enough. He's here. He's not back there. He's not in my past. And honestly, the way God works, yes, He is our future, but the way God works is God prefers to be the God of now. He's here. So let's see if that's true for Elijah. Let's pick up the text. So he took a nap. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Elijah looked around and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. Now, Elijah's got to see this before, but this is cool. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. Horeb is Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, where he went to a cave and spent the night. Remember what's causing Elijah's discouragement. Fear, exhaustion, comparison, isolation. But here at this Rotom, in the shade of God, right at Elijah's right hand, God gives him exactly what is need. His fear gives way to God's presence. His exhaustion gives way to a meal. Right? Sometimes you just need a sandwich and a nap. Amen? His comparison and isolation... Gives way to touch. I love that the rotom bush shows up twice. I love that the angel of the Lord touches Elijah twice. He's letting him know you're not alone. The angel could have showed up and just been like, hey, get up, dummy. <laughs> well, what's he do? He's at your right hand. He's able to be touched. See, the story is telling us over and over this. 
that while we want more, the biblical story is not that the remedy is found in more. The remedy of what you want is enough. You don't want more, the Bible's saying. Stop seeking after more. Because more will never fill you, but what does fill you is when you realize God is enough. Cedric Kanana has a story that when I read it on Monday or Tuesday, whenever I read it, it was so wild that it was beyond belief. Cedric Kanana is the son of a, a Rwandan Muslim man and a witch doctor anim, animism mother. His family, although that seems like two diametrically opposed ideas, actually grew up in a religion that's called folk Islam in Rwanda. It's a mix of Muslim faith, what we would call voodoo, and animism. Cedric, though, was this excelling, smart young man. He was able to, like most young men in the Muslim faith are supposed to do, memorize large chunks of the Quran very quickly. So he grew up fast in that community. But inside, this young man was torn apart. His parents divorced. When he was a teenager, he was left alone in school. What he decided to do was to use his popularity and power and his smarts to deal drugs. And he began to deal drugs, mixing it with his Islamic faith. He would get kids addicted to cocaine or to marijuana and then he would convert them to Islam because they wanted more drugs. And he would say, I can't sell you more drugs unless you become a Muslim. It's quite the, uh, it's quite the syncretism, isn't it? <laughs> Soon after high school, he graduated. And with his ability to memorize the Quran, he was appointed as a teacher, an imam in a Muslim school. But Cedric did not change his lifestyle. He kept his mixed devotions of being dedicated to one religion while living and dealing drugs on another. He recruited people into this world. But one night, Cedric's whole world stopped. He was at a pickup basketball game, and all of a sudden, something in his mind, maybe an aneurysm, he's not sure, and it was never diagnosed, but he was overwhelmed by this sudden dizziness and this loud, deafening noise in his brain. He felt like he was losing his mind. And this went on for months. For months he was sick. And so his mom tried to help him and called in another witch doctor. Muslim leaders surrounded him and they offered nothing. Nothing helped him. He spent months and months on antipsychotic drugs, all that the Western world could give him. But nothing changed. He believed he was going insane. Finally, a friend of a friend who was kind of a nominal follower of Jesus, visited him in the hospital and said, have you tried Jesus yet? In a stupor, not even really knowing what to do with that name, he said, yeah, I'd like to try Jesus. And so somebody got a hold of some local Christians there. And in a stupor over a period of about seven days, he heard the name Jesus prayed over him and over him again and again. These Christians kept showing up. And then on the seventh day, after these other Christians had fasted and prayed for a whole week for Cedric, 
all of a sudden he was 100% better. He snapped out of this stupor and whatever was going on in his brain. This feeling of being okay was stronger than anything he'd ever encountered. But as Cedric would say, he knew the name of Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus. So for seven months, he went on just kind of doing what he'd always done. He was fine. We'd go to Muslim prayers five times a day. He would just decided that in silence, he would substitute out the name Allah for Jesus. And he was kind of doing the Jesus thing, but he was doing it in private. So he'd get on his mat and he'd pray to Jesus. He was still teaching at this Muslim school. But one day again, Cedric collapsed. His dad took him to a hospital that could find no medical reason for any of his conditions. And then at 9 p.m. that night, his heart stopped. And all of a sudden, everything went dark. He has no idea what happened. But 12 hours later, Cedric found himself all of a sudden awake. And he was dressed in a Muslim burial cloth. And he was being cleansed by other people for burial. People thought for the last 12 hours that he was dead. And in that culture, you don't wait around to bury somebody. So he was just laying there getting ready to be buried, I guess, alive. But suddenly he coughed, opened his eyes, and stood up, and everybody in the room ran for the door. (laughs) Thinking he was a zombie or something. When he stood up, he looked down and he realized he was in a burial cloth. And then suddenly, in Cedric's story, something came back to his memory. Something of the last 12 hours from when he says his heart stopped to waking up on this table being ready to be buried. And the memory he had was that he had had a vivid dream of a man who said his name was Jesus. He recognized this was Jesus because Jesus showed him holes in his hands. And in the dream, Cedric says, Jesus said to him, you are among those I died for. Stop denying me. You must tell others and reveal the truth of who you are. Cedric immediately just walked straight out of the hospital. He walked across town in this burial cloth to the very first Christian church he could find. The first little girl he saw as he walked into this Christian church was singing along with the congregation and she saw him in a barrel cloth and ran screaming for the hills. He walked straight to the front and told that congregation, I am here because Jesus has visited me in a dream. He made his faith public, telling them that he had been an imam and a teacher in the Muslim faith. And the next week he entered into baptism. Since then, despite death threats, Cedric's been serving Jesus as a faithful follower of Jesus for 14 years. Leading his father, his stepmother, and his once witch doctor mom all to faith in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is enough. So whatever you're fearing this morning, whatever's holding on to you and you're saying, I I just don't know, I want you to be reminded under a broom tree today, just a little bit of shade you can get, just a little bit of hope you can get. If there's a crack in the door this morning, it's enough. 
You may say, well, that door slammed shut. I'm not changing. I don't like you. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like anything. I don't like these people. That's fine. Give Jesus a crack. Give him just a wiggle of the door. Because he's enough. Maybe you're invested this morning in comparison. Maybe so invested in it that you can't see anything outside of those comparisons and you're discouraged because you're not like so-and-so and you don't match up to so-and-so or you don't have the life like you thought you would and you're in your 40s and you're going through a midlife crisis, right? Isn't that weird, 40-year-olds? We always think, well, I'm not who I should have been when I was 40, right? <laughs> right? When I was 20, I had all these dreams. Now I'm 40 and now I need to buy a Porsche, right? <laughs> no, you don't, right? We believe those things because we compare. Are you isolated? Are you exhausted? My encouragement to you is find a broom bush. Go spend a little time in isolation with God. Because God is right here. Whatever you need this morning, we're here for you. I know we're getting out a little late. But God is enough. I want to pray over you. We'll have some shepherds out in the foyer. Our baptism not just as a practice, not as a ritual, but as a participation, is a baptism saying, I'm not enough, but I know who is. I can't save myself. Christians, we don't climb a ladder of grace in order to get up a couple of rungs and then God say, thank you. Man, I couldn't pull you up all three, so (laughs) I needed you to get up one. We don't do that. We lay at the bottom of the ladder and we say, I got nothing. And God goes, I have everything. That's why baptism is a death to our way and life in Jesus. If you need that this morning, we're here for you as well. Let's stand together. Let's sing.